is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The field getting smaller for the L.A. mayor's race, and it now appears to be a two-person battle. City Attorney Mike Fuhrer dropping out today, quickly endorsing Congresswoman Karen Bass. This comes not long after Councilman Joe Buscaino dropped out and endorsed Rick Caruso. We'll go in-depth into who the front-runner is now, Bass or Caruso. More and more doctors coming to the conclusion that not only is COVID never going to vanish, but that we may get infected many times a year. And the number of people killed in traffic accidents all across the country at a high not seen since 2005. We take a look into why that is. Russia pushed out of the Kharkiv region by Ukrainian forces. A bunch of Russian troops have now apparently taken control of the port city of Mariupol. We'll go into depth. We'll go in depth into the war in Ukraine and talk to a woman who lives in Kharkiv about her experience during the heavy fighting. UFOs, the focus of a congressional hearing today. We'll get into whether these uh, mysterious objects that the Pentagon can't identify are aliens or, you know, just from around here. And a find by the researchers at MIT. Climate change could be stopped by cat litter, of all things. Yeah, <laughs> of all things. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that you know, I, the world would be saved just, by cat litter? I was saying litter. earlier, I was like, it's strange enough that it fits. You I know, know it, does. It, it does. In the timeline we're in, yeah, sure, cat litter will save the world. <laughs> Okay, but before we get to that, we get to this. We start with L.A.'s mayor race. Derry Schrago is a political strategist and USC professor. Hi, thanks for being with us. Um, so as the field whittles down, uh, there's a greater likelihood, is there not, that we may actually have a winner in June? Yes, it's absolutely possible. Uh, political insiders in L.A. have been saying for a long time that this was likely to be a Caruso versus Bass race. Uh, and and as you just said, uh, Karen Bass has one mission, and that is to keep uh, Rick from getting uh, more than fifty percent. Um, if he does that, there's no there's no race in the fall, and she just has to stay in the game and then and then duke it out a number of months from now. Well, is that going to be a hard task to keep him from getting over fifty percent? Well, I, I suspect it's not that hard. I mean, it's not something you should take for granted, but she has a pretty significant base, and there are other candidates in the race, and as you noted, two of them have officially dropped out, but that doesn't mean that their voters know they've dropped out. So there's a whole chunk of vote that will be the not Caruso vote, and 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 if you're just a betting person, I, you know, the odds are that, that he will not get a over 50 percent. I mean, it's, is it possible? Sure. Is it likely? I don't think so. Caruso, of course, has been spending, it's pretty obvious, a lot of money to try to become mayor of the city of Los Angeles. Is there a tally that you're aware of, a, a recent one, on how much he's spent so far? Well, the numbers I saw last were in the high 20s. We're talking millions. Uh, and my guess is it's higher than that now. But look, there's no question that he has infinite firepower, right? I mean, he, he can spend whatever it takes to make sure that having started the race with essentially no Los Angeles voters knowing who he is, that, that he'll become very well known um, to, to, Angel, to Angelinos who vote, and he'll get known on his own terms because he's telling his own story and nobody's telling a negative story about him. Why a uh, not Caruso vote versus a, a not Karen Bass vote? Because I've seen, okay, we're suspicious of, of Rick Caruso. But on the other side, Bass is a politician. There are groups of people who say, I'm fed up with everything that's going on in this city. No more politicians. Let's vote for the person who's not been in office. 
absolutely right. This is a classic outsider versus insider fight. Uh, I've managed quite a few campaigns in that kind of a situation. And the critical question for the outsider is whether or not that – and this is the, the question in the minds of voters – is whether the outsider has sufficient experience to not be taken to the cleaners by the by the political pros once he or she's in office. That That's an absolutely critical question that Rick knew he had to answer. And when you look at his ads, he's talking about the experience he had with LADWP and the police commission. Mission, and he's saying, yeah, I have the sensitivities of an outsider, which is what a lot of voters want, but I, I'll know how to get the job done if you elect me. But here's what it comes down to, I think, uh, for either one, whether it's Caruso or whether it's Karen Bass, uh, unlike cities like New York and Chicago and Boston that has uh, a mayor position with an enormous amount of power. As you know, the position of mayor in the city of Los Angeles is a very diluted one. So can either one of these candidates really do even half the things they claim they want to do. Gee, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that. Uh, no, it's this. We have. You just said it. We have a very weak mayor, and, and I mean, look at look at the people who've been mayor of the city. I, I mean, we don't have a Bloomberg figure here, not because there aren't Bloomberg figures, you know, who could do the job, or a, or a, you know, Mayor Daly or somebody. It's just it's just the structure of the job doesn't lend itself to that, and and you know, there are plenty of people who found that out. Dick Reardon found that out. Antonio Villaraigosa found it out. It, it's it's a job with limited power, and and which raises the question, I suppose, why do either one of these people, you know, Karen or Rick, want the job? But they're well. Wait, wait, that's a good. Wait, you raise a good question, and we're <laughs> running out of time. So very quickly, why do you think? Because that is a good question. Since being mayor of L.A. doesn't have that much power, they can't do that much. Why do they want it? Why does Rick Caruso want to spend twenty plus million dollars to get a position he can't do much in? Well, you know, look, I've never met Rick. Some of these people I know extremely well, but I, I've never met Rick. I don't know the answer. My guess is he's just looking for a new challenge. I mean, he's done extremely well everywhere else in his life. So now this would be the next the next mountain to climb. And that, that's my guess. Karen is very different. Karen started at the community level. And, and, and I was surprised that she was willing to give up a seat in the U.S. House because she had a fair amount of prominence there. You know, she's considered as the vice presidential running mate. But I, my guess is that she just wants to get back on the ground and be working at, at that community level to help solve problems. So I think they're, they're running for very different reasons. Barry Schrago, political strategist, a USC professor. COVID cases are on the rise all across the country. New York City has just transitioned to a high alert level. L.A. may not be far behind. This comes, by the way, as the FDA has approved COVID booster shots for kids 5 to 11. Doctors, though, and scientists are now, well, they're starting to think that people just may get infected with COVID multiple times as we go forward. Dr. Joseph Gastaldo is an infectious disease specialist. So is that the case? Are, are more and more doctors, such as yourself, Coming to the conclusion that not only is COVID not going to go away anytime soon, but that many of us are going to get reinfected over and over and over again? Well, so far it is it is looking that way. And then, like you said, this virus is not going away. It's in animal reservoirs. And it's, so far it's starting to behave from a repeat infection perspective like common cold coronaviruses. You know, people get recurrent infections with those throughout the year. What's different about this virus is it continues to change and we are now dealing with a variant that's more transmissible and this specific variant evades immunity more so than previous variants. 
I think it's important to recognize, though, that I think eventually there's going to be a point where most people, this is true today, when they do get recurrent infections, the symptoms are very mild, not resulting in hospitalizations or death. So in that metric, the vaccines are still working, but I think the unknown really is, um, is there more of a worry with repeated infections and COVID, long COVID? We don't know that yet. We do know that the vaccines are less likely to be associated with people getting long COVID. But again, we, we are learning more and more. And so far, that's how this current variant is behaving with repeated infections. So there seems to be an Omicron problem more than the others we faced before. And is it because Omicron now we've got four or five versions of it running around? And if you catch one of them, you can catch another one a little while later? Yeah, that is true. Uh, Omicron and the subvariants we're dealing with have more immune evasion. And keep in mind, too, in you know, there are many things that go on to making our rates in the community going higher. Obviously, uh, we have a more transmissible variants that are out there, but also, too, we all have COVID fatigue, including me, and people are not necessarily wearing masks when they should be if there's high community level. You know, you mentioned something in passing long COVID, which we've done a lot on the show, and, and that is the problem, is it not, that, that people who are listening to this might be thinking now, well, okay, so if COVID becomes kind of like the common cold, and I get it a few times, maybe a year, you know, so be it, except unlike the common cold, each time you're infected, right, there is a, a, a statistical chance of ending up with very unpleasant long-term symptoms. That is correct. And we also have to be cognizant, too, of at-risk individuals, immunocompromised people. You know, on long COVID, we're really learning to scratch the surface, really trying to figure out what it's all about. And so far, there's publications coming out showing that if you are vaccinated and you do get infection, you are less likely to get long COVID, but it's not zero risk. And your point is well taken. We really don't know about long COVID with people getting repeated infections. So obviously, it's best to do what you can to try to avoid infection. Does this also prevent a vaccine problem going forward if they're modeling the Omicron vaccine, if we even need that one um, on the first go round of Omicron? Well, that doesn't match up to, to now BA4 or BA5. Yeah. So, so far, we have to wait for data on that. But with the context of what the vaccine is supposed to do, is it keeping you out of the hospital and preventing you from dying? And that metric, the vaccine is working well. And with Omicron, you really need to have that booster. Now, we don't know what this fall or winter is going to look like. And my prediction is probably in the fall, there may be a bivalent vaccine, meaning that there'll be a vaccine combination with the original ancestral strain, uh, perhaps with an Omicron specific uh, uh, strain also into it. And what about antivirals? I mean, if we end up getting COVID many times, and maybe even a few times in a year, do we keep popping antiviral pills? Yeah, so that's a great point. You know, I've been messaging really on that. People who have an at-risk condition need to have a plan in place, regardless of your vaccination status. If you have an at-risk condition and you have COVID, what is your plan not only get tested, but what is your plan to get the antiviral medications, whether it be pills or monoclonal antibodies? Now, at this point in time, the antiviral pills that we are now using out more and more, uh, there's no issues with antiviral resistance. But on the horizon, that may be something we have to uh, think about in the future. Dr. Joseph Gastaldo, infectious disease specialist, Ohio Health. And coming up a little bit later, the congressional hearing today explored what the Pentagon knows about UFOs. We'll try to find out if they're from out of this world. And I'm about to say something that people are going to go, he's making that up. Ready? We would never. No, no. A cat litter could be the answer to stopping climate change. It's going to save us all. Uh-huh. Now people are going, <laughs> they're making that up. 
we're not. We'll talk about that later. Right now, though, traffic deaths across the country last year, they hit 43,000. It's the highest they've been since 2005. More people on the roads compared to the year before. But what else explains uh, the high number? Fraser Schilling, co-director of the Road Ecology Center at UC Davis, with us now. So what do you think is, is behind that high of a number? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, one, it, and thank you, by the way, for having me on your show. It's uh, interesting listening to uh, the little vignettes like a cat litter. Uh, but uh, one thing is that as we come out of the pandemic, we, there's kind of a bounce back that's occurred. And we've seen that a lot in a lot of different things that we do as people. You know, uh, we're, we're maybe traveling to more places we haven't gone. Uh, we're going back out to restaurants and bars and so forth. And so part of that bounce back might be that people are, uh, re getting used to again driving uh, after a night out on the town, and uh, so you've got that kind of effect. But also during during the pandemic, with the reduced traffic, uh, it was actually a lot easier to go faster. So um, California Highway Patrol and other and other state patrols around the country noticed that they were getting a lot more high speed uh, tickets, but also crashes. And of course, those are more likely to, to lead to fatality. You know, I was reading also, uh, and and tell me if this is uh, the case, that there are also more drivers, unfortunately, and I suppose passengers too, not wearing seatbelts. And I wonder if that is a kind of after effect of this whole during the pandemic, you know, so many people who don't want to wear masks and the government can't can't tell us what to do kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think there's there's definitely some something which I'm sure psychologists can help us explain, but I think a lot of our intuition is going to be correct about things like this because they're going to be based on our own human experience. You know, when we come out of a lockdown, we come out of some kinds of restrictions. I think there's a a desire to go and do all the stuff you missed out on. And of course that, that can include a lot of different things. Uh, It could be more people driving more places, but it also could be just, as you're pointing out, ignoring common sense rules like don't speed don't and wear your seatbelt we see these press releases go out every now and then funding here for programs to address road safety all this money uh, or risky driving where does that actually go or is it just you know to a road sign that says click it or ticket yeah i don't think it just goes to there but one thing that we've found is that the uh safety pro lining up the safety projects with where the crashes are occurring is really difficult uh we've Notice that in California, it doesn't always line up well. Uh, it is it is difficult to do. And although a lot of money is spent, it may not be spent in the right places. Now, that might be controversial for the, you know, for the transportation folks to, to hear. Uh, but it's really critical to think about that. Are we are we taking those many, many billions of dollars and spending them in the right places and in the right ways? Because at the same time, you might be, you know, fixing a, an off ramp or an on ramp so people don't over the guardrail, you're letting, you, you know, you're increasing the speed limit to 65, 70 miles an hour. So those two things don't really go together. You know, I also wonder whether or not there isn't a component of, you know, as more and more people have newer so-called smarter cars, do they become over-reliant on the cars to protect them and become careless drivers? Yeah, no, I think that's definitely true. I mean, as soon as I bumped up my car to uh, something that has 20-something airbags, I noticed that I think about that and how I probably am going to survive better. And it's just not a healthy way to drive, you know, but I think it's part of that same psychology of driving where we 
we act in ways that we shouldn't. And I don't know what the best solution is to that except enforcement. I mean, that's what keeps me from speeding is I, I think I might get a ticket. Fraser Schilling, co-director, the Road Ecology Center at CUC Davis. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Ukrainian fighters who were left in the port city of Mariupol had been mounting a one last stand to fight off Russian troops, prevent them from taking complete control of the city. Looks like uh, now the fall of the city is all but official. Those fighters just left a big steel plant and turned themselves over to the Russians in what is now a big development in the war. With us again, journalist Phil Itner, who is in Kiev. Phil, thanks for being back with us. So uh, I guess as you start tallying up who's winning what, uh, I, I guess you have to give this to the Russians, yes, Mari- Mariupol? Yeah, after a real long a protracted fight that went on for you know weeks. They, they finally have evacuated the pretty much the last of the fighters uh, from that uh, Avast, uh, the um, uh, as of steel uh, steel factory. And uh, as you mentioned, they they came out in the corridor, surrendered to the Russians, and they were taken to uh, a location in the breakaway republic uh, in the Donbass. Do we know what's going to happen to the, I guess that's up to the Russians, but the Ukrainians have said, you know, they were evacuated out, but into Russian territory. The Russians are saying we're going to just treat them as, as prisoners like any other. Well, that, 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 that's how it stands right now. But troublingly, uh, there is also a uh, proposal in the uh, Russian state Duma, the lower house of the parliament, to uh, consider the Azov Brigade, many of whom were the fighters that, that took that last stand in the Azov Steel uh, plant, uh, to designate the Azov Brigade as a terrorist organization. That vote is up uh, on the 26th. And, uh, you know, if they can't resolve what is to be done with those uh, prisoners before then, uh, it may very well be that they, they will be considered uh, a terrorists. So uh, that may be a bargaining point that the Russians are, are publicly making, uh, or it may be an in, open intention of holding them through that period, and then their punishment obviously would be far more grave. So we've had some experts on the show, uh, Phil, who have said the only way this is going to end is with a negotiation. And the question, I guess, is what would that negotiation look like? What do you think? Well, I think that this goes a long way towards Russia uh, being able to claim at least some sort of victory. Because, you know, we've been talking for a while, you you guys and I, uh, since I I, I came to this this conflict, about uh, one of the main strategic goals of this conflict is for Russia to achieve a land bridge linking uh, the Russian uh, territory proper up to the Crimean Peninsula, which they took in 2014. And uh, Mariupol has been a uh, sticking point in that land bridge. Uh, Now that that is actually uh, in Russian hands, uh, if they can get control of a strategically important uh, waterway that comes out of the town of Kherson, which has been kind of goes back and forth or has gone back and forth from Russian control and Ukrainian control, uh, if they can grab you know, if they can consolidate control of that and get the water that goes to Crimea and then get just, they only need a little bit of territory and there's not much stopping them from Mariupol to, to Crimea, um, then they will have achieved one of their primary strategic goals. And if they do that, that might be a way for Vladimir Putin to save face, claim uh, one of his strategic victories and maybe negotiate a peace. 
If anything, though, we do know this is probably still going to be a prolonged event. It, uh, it, it does look like that. Certainly the Ukrainians have been indicating that their intention is to reclaim as much territory as possible. But, you know, this, this war is taxing for both sides, uh, both in terms of what Russia is facing with sanctions. Those probably will not be going anywhere anytime soon, regardless of a negotiated peace. But also in addition to that, uh, you know, the, the, just the toll in, uh, terms of their, their minimateriel, that's hurting Russia. And of course, you know, to have a war on your own territory for the Ukrainians is is taxing. So uh, while, you know, if the the Ukrainians decide that they're going to try and take back the territory that they've lost since 2014, then this goes on. And they have a lot of weapons to do that with. But at the same time, you know, everybody's tired of war. I'm wondering what you make of of this, uh, Phil. There was, I think it was yesterday, uh, a retired, I believe he is, uh, colonel, Russian colonel, who was on Russian state TV and criticized the the war and and in effect said, and I'm paraphrasing, but in effect said that uh, it's not good for Russia. And I'm wondering how he managed to do that in such a controlled media environment and whether somebody is trying to send a message yeah that that was striking for a lot of us who monitor what comes out of russia and um i'm gonna probably i'm not gonna remember his name probably kazamatsov or something to that effect um he uh a lot has been floated about that and uh, a lot's been discussed about the fact that nothing shows up on that show on uh, russia's first channel because it is controlled by the Kremlin. Spontaneous outbursts do not, you know, really ever happen uh, on that show. And the fact that he has not been publicly punished for what he said adds to this kind of idea that perhaps it has been that that was purposely done to float the idea so that that, uh, the Kremlin could kind of judge what kind of reaction internally within Russia that would that would uh, bring about. And if that's the case, then they are uh, trying to tamper down what maybe they have have been pumping out previous to that. And that is that, you know, we're going for all out victory and a defeat, you know, total defeat of Ukraine. So um, it it was shocking to see that happen, uh, I will admit. And uh, it it does bring the question about of, was, was it was it a way to run it up the flagpole and see who salutes? And if that's the case, then, as I say, the Russians are as tired of war as the Ukrainians are. So maybe they're they're trying to judge whether or not um, they can get away with, with walking away from this with some sort of victory, but also to kind of um, to, to uh, bring down expectations of the Russian people. Journalist uh, Phil Itner, who is in Kiev. Phil, thanks. While the Russians may have control of Mariupol now, they have apparently been driven out of the Kharkiv region near the Ukraine-Russia border. Russia had been trying to take control of the area. Ukraine says the troops have pushed the Russian soldiers out of the region, even made their way to the border in a big advance. All the fighting's taken its toll on the people there, though. With us again is Oleksandra, who lives in Kharkiv. We talked to her last over a month ago. She and her husband and mother-in-law have stayed in the city the whole time. Oleksandra, thank you for coming back. Um, what is it like now with those Russian soldiers gone? Uh, thank you for invitation. Uh, I can say that uh, we can feel totally safe now because, you know, uh, this rockets it like a Russian roulette. Uh, it 
can be missiled everywhere. Uh, we had shellings uh, in the even in the Lviv region. It's uh, far west of the Ukraine. So uh, until uh, our victory, we can't feel safe. Uh, but uh, uh, I can say that uh, since Russians has been uh, pushed out of far from the city. It's been a lot uh, calmer here and uh, some people are considering to return to their home in the northern parts of the city, but it's mostly uh, people who lived uh, in Kharkiv, but uh, in some shelters, uh, underground uh, stations uh, and uh, calmer neighborhoods. So they're deciding to come back to their homes if uh, their apartments survived uh, shellings. For example, my friends uh, considering this in week or two. How has your life and your family's life changed in the past month or so since we've talked to you? Uh, unfortunately, uh, our family used to war and it's sad to understand because uh, it's uh, it's disgusting uh, something terrible happening during our lives and we just used to it and uh, I think it's horrible situation but we need to do something to um, keep things going during the war so we're trying to live our normal lives as much as it possible and uh, I can say that uh, it significantly changed during the last months maybe it became more calm than a month before because uh, more calm nights, uh, more calm uh, uh, spirits uh, and uh, of people in our neighborhood. So um, we're just enjoying the spring. What are you doing now to try and get a little slice of, of what seems more normal? Because there was a while there where the Russians were in control and, and you had told us that there were you know protests every day and then they started to, to come after the protesters. And there was a while where really you weren't leaving home too much, but but now you can you can go out and work as you've got the city back. Uh, yes, uh, there are a lot of uh, people, as I've said, come back to the city from different regions. And uh, some people are deciding to uh, go for a walk uh, or uh, now for from yesterday, we have some public transport uh, in the city. So uh, we can use non, not only the personal car or taxi to um, like go to another part of the city and uh, uh, it gives us hope to, for a better living for some something that we call something like normal life yes and uh, me personally i'm trying to visit my parents uh, in another district of the city every weekend spend some time together uh, work in the garden uh, and so on i speak with my friends, uh, meet friends I can meet who stayed in Kharkiv. And uh, maybe that's all because I'm working uh, remotely. So I was working since the first day of war. Do you have a different view now than perhaps a month or so ago on what you think the outcome of this all is going to be, how this is going to end I've always believed that we will win in this war and Russia has no chance. Of course, there was uh, tough days uh, 
uh, with shellings and air bombing, but uh, this hope uh, in our hearts is still here. And uh, every inch of Ukrainian ground freed from invaders makes us very happy. And we believe in our armed forces. We hope they will return to their homes and families safe. We donate to our army. We donate to volunteers who help army and uh, just hope for the best, give them our best wishes. Is it harder to, to hope for the best as time goes on or when you have these victories like you've had, does that help fuel it? I can say it becomes di more difficult or less difficult. It's difficult to see how many disaster and pain uh, Russians cost to our land and our people, to children who got to flee from their homes, children who died during this war. But uh, we still have each other and we're still Ukrainians. We have a language, we have a land, and uh, we just uh, stay together and believe that everything will be okay and uh, just waiting for a victory to celebrate. Oleksandra lives in Kharkiv. We uh, last spoke over a month ago. She and her husband, mother-in-law, stayed in the city the whole time. Oleksandra, again, thank you for coming back and speaking with us, and, and we're, glad, we're glad you're in a, uh, a safer spot now. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. When it comes to UFOs, the government has been secretive about what it may or may not know about them. Until recently, when the Pentagon admitted, yeah, some of the flying objects seen by fighter pilots, they can't be explained. Today marked the first time in over 50 years that there was an open congressional hearing about UFOs. A top Pentagon official says the military is committed to finding out what these objects really are. The big question most people want to know, of course, is, are these aliens? With us now is Alex Filipinko, uh, astrophysicist, professor of astronomy at UC Berkeley. And you may have seen him, by the way, on um, television on the History Channel series, The Universe. Thanks for being with us. Well, well thank you, Mike and Charles. So, it's a pleasure. So here's the thing. Uh, every, as I said, everybody wants to know, OK, we can't explain it. So people jump to the next conclusion. Therefore, some of them at least must come from some other planet. Is that even physically possible given the laws of physics yeah so it is physically possible to have spacecraft go from one planetary system to another for example our voyager spacecraft which passed by jupiter and saturn in the 1980s will in a few million years go past other stars but they zoom past they don't you know go around and spy through windows of houses and that kind of thing and they don't evade other aircraft on those alien worlds. They just go flying past. So it's incredibly unlikely that the sightings that have been claimed as extraterrestrial alien intelligence are, in fact, that. They are almost certainly various you know, aircraft, drones, either the U.S. military or potential adversaries like Russia and China or some combination of those kinds of things. But the alien people will say, Alex, they have warp drive. They've got portals or something, so they just uh, snap their fingers and then they're here. Right. Well, you know, there are certain things in physics that we think we understand pretty well, and that's reasonably unlikely, in fact, very unlikely, that they just snap their fingers. And if they're that advanced to be able to do that, 
of what interest are we? We're no threat to them. We're just like ants wandering around on the sidewalk and you don't feel compelled to squash them or even take note of them in general, right? Maybe it's like a school trip, you know? Well, right. <laughs> take no, the little ones to go see well, the uh, earthlings. What, what worries me is that over decades now, the evidence hasn't gotten any better. There's always these, you know, military-grade infrared cameras that get these fuzzy images of something distant it, it doesn't get any better. And the, the standards of science are very, very high. Your evidence and your analysis has to be very thorough. Otherwise, we'd go flitting from one hypothesis to another all over the place in science, and it wouldn't be this field that makes steady progress. Yeah, and, and I, I've always wondered that. Like, why not just, ev- you'd think that one of them eventually would just land, you know, like, what was that uh, old 1950s movie, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still? Yeah. Right. Uh, that they would just kind of like land on the White House lawn and announce uh, they're taking over or something like that. Why wouldn't yeah. they do that? Yeah, that, that's right. You know, why do they, and, and if, uh, if they're that competent that they can go through interstellar space, why are they so incompetent that we even notice them at all uh, versus just saying, okay, here we are. We're way more advanced than you are. You can't do anything about us, you know? Uh, so either, either show us full face or escape our attention altogether, you know? <laughs> there's the theory, though, that maybe there's uh, plenty of life out there, but like you say, they can't get to us and we can't get to them or civilizations only last so long. So maybe the aliens, you know... They all went to war and then uh, they didn't survive. They didn't get to the well, point to even fly off the planet and come see us. Yeah, that, that's right. Intelligence and uh, advanced mechanical ability like what we have may be the kind of thing that lasts only a short time. We don't know that, you know, but if they were very common, you know, like millions of them in our galaxy, wh- why wouldn't we be the aliens? Why wouldn't they or at least some of them have populated the whole Milky Way galaxy, right? This is the old Fermi paradox. If they're, if they're that abundant, why don't we see clear, more definitive, more compelling evidence for them? So I actually think that they're pretty rare. I don't necessarily think we're alone, but I think we're pretty rare and that these particular sightings are not very good evidence for having been visited. And what about... Forgetting about spacecraft, uh, just signals from space. I mean, why aren't we picking up, say, you know, their signals from dumb TV shows that they have? Right. So that's a very good question. You know, we with radio telescopes can look out a couple of hundred light years now, which encompasses a fair number of stars. Um, it's still a small fraction of the stars in our galaxy. So it could be that there are no intelligent aliens out to that distance. Uh, if they're much farther away, then they have all sorts of other places more nearby to them that they can explore. We're no threat. You know, why not just sort of keep an eye on us from a distance? And if they think that we do become a threat, well, then come and investigate us in more detail or, or squash us or whatever. <laughs> maybe, maybe, they, maybe they think gas is cheaper here. Well, I don't know about now, though. You know, <laughs> <laughs> They're still enjoying the old episodes of I Love Lucy. Uh, Alex Filipenko, astrophysicist, professor of astronomy at Berkeley, and you can see him on the History Channel's The Universe. Wouldn't that be interesting if that is the reason, if there are visitors from they're other places? They're waiting for more. Yeah, they, they're going... They're like, where's the renewal of the season? Yeah. Give yeah. me more of that. And why is it in black and white? <laughs> Scientists have been finding ways to fight climate change for years now, all along. The answer may have been in front of them, 
purring and meowing. MIT researchers found a type of clay commonly used in cat litter effective at removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere, if you do it right. With us to explain is Desiree Plata, civil and environmental engineering professor at MIT, lead researcher into this study. Desiree, thank you. So the headlines out there read, kitty litter is going to save the world, kitty litter is going to stop climate change. Is that at least sort of right? Close. Um, you know, cat litter is probably the most common way that people have interacted with the in- active ingredient in the material that we're making to take methane out of the atmosphere. Um, so it's made from a clay alumina silicate, which is really all around us. It's one of the most common materials on the surface of the earth, and it's used as a commodity material in cat litter. Okay, so how does this actually work to help our environment? Yeah, so so we play a few tricks with the aluminum silicate, this uh, zeolite. We dope it with copper, and that creates a special um, active center that can take the methane and convert it into less warming greenhouse gases. Methane does about 120 times as much damage as CO2 when released into the atmosphere, and it does most of that damage early. So if you can take it out of the atmosphere, you get a near-term climate benefit. So where would you put it and i imagine it turns into some kind of some kind of paste that you can put on something or or in something how would it work if you get to that point because this is early on right yeah yeah it's it's early on now um really what we what we you know we've done a little math to figure out that you get the most bang for your buck if you can deploy this catalyst at places that have high levels of methane but not methane that you could say ignite or or light to a flare um and so a few examples of that might be uh, dairy barns or barns used for meat cultivation um or coal mines are another good example. Natural gas fields or landfills are another one. So methane is enriched at all of those places, but it's what we call subflarable. It's not concentrated enough to light on fire and convert to CO2. Um, and so you need another way to, to take it out of the air, and this catalyst does exactly that. But how is it deployed? Is it a filter on an air conditioning system, that sort of thing? Yeah, exactly. And so what we would like to do is actually deploy it at places where we're already moving air around. And so you might imagine at a cattle barn, there's um, cross ventilation fans that are that are conditioning the air for the animals. Um, We could take advantage of that air movement to build a filter that interfaces to that um, that air handler and react the methane out of the air before it gets released into the environment. Similarly, at coal mines um, and other metallurgical mines, they're pulling air into the mine shaft to really protect the miners' health and safety. And when that air comes back out into the atmosphere, it's highly enriched in methane. And if we could take that methane out um, at the end of that air handler unit, it would be a great and dramatic climate benefit. I feel like you've invented a catalytic converter not for the car, but for the mines and the farms. Yeah, that's exactly right. Is this something, though, that has an application uh, in the home setting, which conjures up all kinds of unpleasant images, but is this something (laughs) for the the home setting? Yeah, I mean, the reason that we don't want to go there first is because the methane in the air that we breathe is very, very dilute. It's, um, it's, it's one uh, part per million, uh, it's 1.8 part per million in the atmosphere. It's very small levels. And so if you did deploy these at all the air handlers on the face of the earth, you just simply wouldn't get enough 
methane removal in somebody's home. So it's really better to go to places where you know there are so-called fugitive emissions of methane or dilute levels of methane that are escaping into the atmosphere already. So you said you did the math. Do the math for us when we apply this to those large spaces and in terms of this fight we have against climate change. How much could we theoretically get out of the air or at least turn it into something that's, that's better for the Earth? Yeah, so so methane in the atmosphere is climbing uh, somewhere on the order between 14 and 19 uh, billion uh, grams of, of carbon per year. Um, uh, that's a lot um, to, of, of methane carbon specifically. So if we could stop that process and potentially turn it in reverse, we could do a lot to change the rate of global warming. So, so one number that the United Nations and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change like to um, throw up proposes, if we could reduce emissions of methane by 45%, we could save a half a degree Fahrenheit in warming by mid-century or 2050. That's really amazing um, if you think about the total amount of warming that's anticipated to be able to, to cut that uh, by a third is, is a dramatic saving. You know, I can uh, almost hear uh, cat lovers who might be listening worrying now <laughs> that if this product takes off, there's going to be a huge shortage of cat litter. Ah, the reason you don't have to worry about that <laughs> is because aluminous silicates are really um, present in almost every mineral around the surface of the earth as, as a byproduct or, or a mixed-in material, if you can think of it that way. Um, and so it's left over from lots of other mining processes. So, so it's not something that we have to worry about having access to in the United States. It's not something you have to worry about running out, really. There's an, an abundant supply of uh, clay aluminous silicates. Where did your inspiration come from to look in this area? Oh, actually, um, <laughs> so a couple of places, uh, but my training is in oceanography, and it turns out that there are organisms uh, that live beneath the, the sediments underneath the sea and in lakes that can take methane um, in the presence of oxygen at low temperatures and convert it to biomass, or ge- so they generate, you know, electricity, they can generate energy from it. Um, and build their own body material. And that's exactly what we need if we want to take methane out of the atmosphere, right? We need something that works in air. We need something that works at low temperature. And we need um, something that can act on low levels of methane, just like these bacteria do. And so we really said, how can we mimic what these microorganisms or what evolution is telling us is the best way to do this chemistry? And um, there's been actually quite a bit of research on that over the past many decades. And we explored some of those technologies to see if they would work in this application, um, and, and they did. can we just steal these organisms and put them to work for us? <laughs> Give them nine to five. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it turns out, you know, so um, <laughs> the, nature is always trying to, to, to save us from ourselves. And, um, you know, so about uh, 90% of the methane in the atmosphere gets converted to CO2 through a natural process called reaction with a hydroxyl radical, uh, and the other 10% is is consumed by these microorganisms. So we really can't, you know, deploy them to work for us. They're doing their job, and it's only about fixing about 10% of the problem. Um, and so we need to <laughs> we need to step it up a little bit through um, non-biological materials. Yeah, clean up our own mess, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, we can't pin it on the poor microorganisms. You know, if we could deploy this technology at all the coal mines that are still operational around the world, we could stop the atmospheric accumulation of methane. And then nature kind of takes over and draws those levels down by themselves. Desiree Plata over at MIT. See, we didn't disappoint. No, what a perfect solution. Oh, there he goes. Sorry. Very nice.
terrible. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> we're back tomorrow. <laughs>